Welcome to Happiness Habitat. I'm your host, Jacqueline Burnett. On this podcast, I'm going to help you optimize your opportunity zone and enhance your happiness habitat. On today's episode, you're going to get to hear from David Meltzer. David Meltzer is the co-founder of Sports One Marketing and formerly served as CEO of the renowned Lee Steinberg Sports and Entertainment Agency, which was the inspiration for the movie Jerry Maguire. He is a three-time international best-selling author, a top 100 business coach, the executive producer of Entrepreneur's number one digital business show, Elevator Pitch, and host of the top entrepreneur podcast, The Playbook. His newest book, Game Time Decision Making, was a number one new release. David has been recognized by Variety Magazine as their Sports Humanitarian of the Year and awarded the Ellis Island Medal of Honor. David's life's mission is to empower over 1 billion people to be happy. This simple yet powerful mission has led him on an incredible journey. You're going to get to learn about his journey and his best practices to living an abundant life. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to Happiness Habitat. I am joined by a very special guest today, someone who I've not only been looking up to for years, but also my cousin, David Meltzer. Thank you for being here oh, at your house. Yeah. <laughs> no, I've been looking forward to this, watching your evolution and revolution all in one. So I love thanks it. for having me at the of Happiness Habitat. That's right. That's what you have created so beautifully for yourself, for your family, and I'm so grateful that you've allowed me to be here for so long. Oh, of course. <laughs> it's been amazing. So I want to talk a little bit about your transformation because you have gone from becoming super successful and wealthy at a very young age to losing it and building it back. And can you dive into a little bit of that story? Because I know I know it really well, but for people listening, it's just a tremendous story, and I'm so excited to dive in. Well, you know, it's a really about my relationship to money. Uh, since I grew up with nothing but super happy, I thought that money bought happiness and love. And so my journey, which was reaffirmed all through my childhood, all through my college years, all through my law school years, and into my professional years until uh, my first warning at 30, everything in my life was indicative that money would buy love and happiness. Uh, I bought, wanted to buy my mom a house because that was the only time I'd see her not happy. She was financially stressed because she had six kids and being a single mom, a lot of financial pressures. So uh, in my mind, I was focused uh, subconsciously, unconsciously, and consciously on making money. And I thought, and like I said, it was reaffirmed every step of my career, uh, from the girls that I dated, to the girl I got engaged to uh, when I was in law school because she was rich, to being able to marry my dream girl and break it off with my fiance, uh, and thinking that she loved me because you know I finally made it. All those different things, you know, nine months out of law school, I was a millionaire. Bought my mom a house in a car. Uh, went to the Silicon Valley, made more millions in the in the uh, middleware space, and then became CEO of the world's first smartphone. Everybody sucked up to me. Everyone told me how great I was. I thought that everyone loved me. Uh, I thought that you know, I you know, that I was so happy. And then at 30 years old, my dad gave me the first type of uh, warning. My dad, who left when he was five, broke my heart when I was 10 because he lied to me and told me that he didn't forget my birthday, even if he did, that he didn't believe in birthdays. So I had this hatred for him because he was a liar, a cheater, manipulator, back-end seller, overseller, 
And at 30, he gave me my first present in 20 years. And that present ended up saving my life, but not that day. I ended up hating my father even more because he gave me a jacket I thought he was punishing me. He gave me a sport coat that had no pockets in it. And I remember specifically being so excited, thinking my dad had changed, my dad had learned some great lesson, but no, he was trying to teach me a lesson. And I was the one that was lost. At 30, he told me he gave me a jacket to hang in my closet to remind me that money doesn't buy love or happiness. He told me that I couldn't take anything with me when I was gone, that I was just like him, and he was concerned for me. Uh, at that time, I was in ego-based consciousness uh, with the need to be right, offended, separate, inferior, superior, guilty, angry, frustrated. So I told him you know, to F off. I told him uh, that I was nothing like him and that he was a liar, a cheater, a manipulator, a back-end seller. So I hung it in my closet and forgot about it. Uh, six years later, I went golfing. I was running now the most notable sports agency in the world. Once again, reaffirming money buys love and happiness. I literally got hired because you know they, I was an icon to make money, of financial security, of teaching young athletes uh, you know, here that your son or daughter would be taken care of financially because I was an expert at that. I was Midas. Uh, but I went golfing with my best friend, actually since the fourth grade, which is when I met my wife as well. In fact, this friend asked my wife for me to go study at sixth grade camp. <laughs> and she said, no, tell him to ask me himself. And, uh, you know, once again, though, you know, she ended up marrying me after years and years of not liking me or even hating me. Uh, but he went golfing with me and I was, you know, asking him why he doesn't hang out with me. And I played, you know, uh, golf with him and told him, hey, why don't you come to the Super Bowl with me or the Masters with me, hang out with these celebrities and athletes. And he was a pretty stern guy. And he's like, I don't like who you hang out with and I don't like what you guys are doing. And it really hurt my feelings. I'm like, I don't do what those guys do. And he, he just looked at me and said, Dave, you can lie to me, just don't lie to yourself. And that really hurt. Uh, I could start, you know, I was the first person in a long time that since my dad six years earlier told me the truth. Somebody wasn't just telling me what I wanted to hear, being a yes person in my life. Even my wife, you know, uh, was probably too afraid to tell me the truth uh, because she had so much to lose. And, you know, because I was a great provider and I was a good person. I was just lost. And two weeks later, though, my wife had had it. I went and lied, lied to her for like the last time. I went to the Grammy Awards with a rapper named Little John and changed clothes in the car and came home 5.30 in the morning, got drunk, intoxicated, high, and you know, completely lost. And my wife told me she wasn't happy and that she was gonna leave me, but I better take stock in who I was and what I wanted to become uh, or I probably was gonna end up dead. And I got really angry. Same thing, same reaction I had to my dad six years earlier. Right? It was all about them. How dare they? How dare they question the great, you know, what have I ever done but provide for all of them? I was so successful. I was so happy. I was so great. And uh, I went to bed angry and the next morning I woke up even more upset. Um, I was going to take everything. I was living in a world of my world for me. Uh, I ventured off of the world of not enough, of being a victim, but now everything was for me. I was buying things that I didn't need, I was trying to impress people I didn't even like, and I forgot about what was really important. So, uh, 
I was going to call my friend who's a lawyer to find out who the best lawyer was that could take everything, including my kid and my wife. And, oh my gosh. <laughs> and uh, I was so mad, so offended, so resentful. Felt like, how dare she? And I looked over and in the closet, uh, that jacket just called to me, called out to me. I looked at her, I'm like, oh man. I still get choked up because I was like, oh, I'm just like my dad. So, yeah, I, I was a liar, cheater, manipulator, back-end seller, overseller. So I wrote down these values. I took stock of who I was. I've been taking inventory of my values every day, not afraid to be a hypocrite, to change, to accelerate, to grow. But, you know, 13 years later, I've been able to manifest everything I wanted in my life by being of service and a value, by living to pursue the truth. I know that... I'm not 100% uh, to my potential, and I don't think anyone is, and I'm okay eliminating my mistakes and teaching other people to find the light, love, and lessons in everything that they're doing, the same way I still find the light, love, and lessons in everything I do. That's amazing. Every time I hear this story, I literally choke up. Me it's, too. It's so I have to beautiful. tell it all the time. <laughs> but it's just like what you say, you know, truth vibrates the fastest. And you literally strike a chord when you're just sharing your truth, and that is your truth. And I want to touch on, too, what was that moment like when you lost everything? And, you know, because you hold these values now that you, you carry, but what, what was it like when you really were having to build them? Because I feel like a lot of people, it's like they're still, they're still growing. They're still learning how to build and live to their truth. Yeah, it's... Um... It's interesting because when I learned to look within, I had now things that I could control, right? When I was looking for acceptance and love and appreciation and worthiness from others, I would never get it, right? Because you can only have and give what you have. And so I started looking within. And so two years after I went through my transformation, my quantum shift, as I call it, is when I lost everything. I lost everything. I was I was prepared. In fact, I think that's what scared my wife the most is how calm I was. I was living in control. I controlled my mindset, my feelings, what I thought and said and did. I controlled all of those things, and I was super confident that I'd be able to take care of everything. Uh, and I lived by my own values. And I was not trying to please uh, you know anyone else but myself, so I could give it to someone else. And I've always been that way. In fact. You know, lessons keep coming two and a half years ago. My wife told me, when I asked her, what would you like? I'd give you anything. You know, I appreciate you so much for everything that we have. What do you want? And she said, for you to take care of yourself. Because I wasn't physically, health-wise, right? And she said, if you take care of yourself, I know you'll take care of everyone else. And that's where I was in 2008. I had to take care of myself. And that's why receiving is so important, feeling worthy. Uh, I teach people all the time, they, they use guilt and offense and resentment and, and their whys and excuse and their ego, their pride, their separateness, their inferior, all the time as an excuse because they're not tough enough just to deal with themselves. They're not tough enough to, to receive and they can make every excuse, you know, oh, I just give everything to everyone else. What are you giving to everyone else? If you don't have anything, what are you really giving? Like, get tough. Go get something and then give it away. That's, to me, unconditional giving. You know, you can sit at home high on your mom's couch and tell you that you do everything for everyone else. What are you doing? Right? I got cousins and family and friends that are just like that. You know, they're like these philanthropic, 
humanitarians, you know, oh, I care about the environment. I'm like, okay, so what are you doing besides flapping your big ass lips and telling people to recycle? Right. Like preaching and, and literally putting judgments into conditions. You want to change the environment, then create something that converts plastic into energy or dissolves pla plastic into an edible or, you know, give a shitload of money like Bezos $10 billion to save our environment. That seems to me like a, a way to do it. And, those are the type of perspectives that I teach. Those are the ones that I live by. To giving and receiving are one. Receiving by itself is no good, and giving by itself is no good. Absolutely. What are some good practices that someone can apply to fill themselves? So I have five practices that I believe in that make giving and receiving one. And I love the way that you use the word practice uh, because it is a practice, especially for people that are younger. You know, patience is, is a virtue and respect that everything is a practice and we want, especially now, instant gratification. We want to be able to see and materialize acceleration and change and growth. And that's just not possible. Our senses aren't that strong. Our memories are even weaker. And uh, the growth doesn't occur that way. It occurs slowly and exponentially. And that you have to be able to put the, the work in. So the five things to practice, number one, take inventory of your values, personal, experiential, giving, receiving. Two, you need to learn the ask and attract methodology. You need to learn to ask a series of questions of how you can be of service or value, but also a series of questions knowing that there are no gatekeepers, that there's only power sponsors and sponsors. People, a sponsor is someone that knows someone that can do something or, some, or someone that can help you, or a power sponsor is someone that can actually help you themselves with something or someone, or they know something or someone. Uh, third one is a big one for me, which is the hardest practice and the most quantitatively valuable in anyone's life because it blends time, a man-made construct with faith, and that's being a student of your calendar. Uh, people misinterpret this, I probably have said this a thousand times, but studying is not looking at your calendar. Most people can't even look at their calendar every day, but let alone study it, which is pay attention to and give intention to the coincidences that you want. And uh, if you do that, if you study what you have planned in the day with a, what I call the Meltzer Kaleidoscope, a lens of productivity, accessibility, and gratitude, if you study that uh, productivity or you study the accessibility, how are you accessing things, how are you accessible to others, and then finally gratitude, which gives you, a, gra a, a gracious lens gives you the ability to take pain for what it is. And what pain is, is all it is, is an indicator you know, it's like the hazard lights or, you know, the engine light comes on, it's an indicator, pain, that says, hey buddy, you have a lesson to learn, physical, emotional, spiritual, financial, lesson to learn. But yet, you know, we can't see it that way. We see it as a, a stop, a resistance, a void, a shortage, an obstacle in a way. It's not, it's just an indicator that you need something to learn. And so that lens of gratitude is so important because it allows you to see the primary uh, pain is fear and all secondary emotions that go behind it, those needs of the ego that I spiel off all the time about the need to be right, offended, separate, very superior, anxious, angry, all those things. Uh, the fourth one is simple. Let's do it now. That's uh, a mathematical advantage in the universe. So powerful. <laughs> it's easy. 100% of the things you do now get done. You know, people get stuff done or ahead of people that don't. You can even have a secondary list of things you can't get done and put those in your, as a student in your calendar for the next day and prioritize by what's most important first. If it's urgent, just uh, delegate to somebody. And then finally, 
fifth most importantly in life, especially for young, is to practice in fear. Uh, so practicing in fear is a three-step process. One, two, when the indicator of pain comes up, to stop. Uh, that's the most ferocious free will that you'll ever have, is if anybody's ever been in the ego-based consciousness, in the throes of the wrong trajectory, as I call it, and you're able to stop. Um, it's amazing. Then, after you're so ferocious, then you need to be a Buddha. So, I call myself the ferocious Buddha. Uh, a Buddha is centered uh, in neutral. So, stop, drop, and uh, drop down to neutrality. Breathe through your nose, out through your mouth, and then finally roll, take action, move into the right direction, according to alignment with the values that you have. So, you roll towards the objectives that you set forth by taking inventory of your values every day. If you are in ego-based consciousness, you're on fire. Your mind, body, and soul on fire. If you're on fire, just remember which mantra stop dropping practice it fear. So those are the five things that you can do to have that practice. And uh, I promise you it will work. You have shared with me, in, in other ways, because I know you've transformed in how you communicate these practices, but I mean, you've instilled these practices in me all the way back at Sportsman Marketing when I worked for you. Even the DIN, do it now. It takes under five minutes. Just do it now. Be a student of your calendar. Know everything, what you're doing that are paid, unpaid, and just be grateful for the journey. And for people who are on their journey too, and you know, they're so attached to, you know, I need to make a million dollars by 25. I need to do X, Y, Z. But like, how do you detach from that? You know, because that really can stop you in your well, tracks. Well, it's even harder when you love someone a ton. I mean, I've had, you know, relatives like you that have worked for me at 20 years old, my own nephew uh, as well. And, uh, you know, it takes a lot of patience to allow someone to learn, right? To know, you, as long as it takes to get something done, meaning, you know, I mean, there's no overnight successes, I can't make you learn, right? All I can do is expose you to different ways of thinking. So Dennis Wakeley helped me a lot. He's an older, uh, famous, famous sales motivator and educator, written books that are incredible. But he talks about taking the position of planting seeds under trees you'll never sit under, right? And so, you know, even when you were 20 years old and graduated college, you could go get her. And, you know, the best definition I have for everyone is people that don't know what they don't know and uh, you know at 20 years old everybody's so worried what everybody else thinks and then at 40 years old what you'll find is you don't care what anybody thinks and then at 60 years old what, what I find is that I'm not 60 yet but what people what they realize is nobody cares um, and <laughs> yeah that's the progression of life and so at 20 years old how do you teach somebody that doesn't know what they don't know. What you can do is either plant seeds, water the seeds that have been planted, or help the tree grow. Uh, and you know, harvest as much as you can. And, and it's so much fun because I don't quit on people. This is it, I don't quit on my potential. And so to watch your evolution and Casey Adams' evolution and you know my nephew Josh's evolution, and you guys are still just in your mid-20s. And I have someone who plays a major role in my company, and I forget sometimes that today's his birthday, he's 31 years old, and I'm like, I'm 52, right? I have almost been working twice as long as he's been, I mean, alive, That's a while. Right, and that's yeah. a lot of experience. And I'm a mm -hmm. very focused person. It's not like, this activity I get paid for an activity I don't, and you have to have that perspective and, you know, of what you're doing and who you're doing it with and allow things to happen.
Yeah, I am. I'm still reaping the benefits from what I've learned from you like five years ago. I'm so grateful and I'm still reaping the benefits from my environment that my parents created for me when I was, you know, super young. You know, they, they instilled so many, not just affirmations, but my dad, one thing that I'll point out, he would always say, you're such an asset to this planet. And he would repeat that to me over and over again as a little girl. And now I'm not, it's not like my, it's made my head big, but it's like, how can I be an asset to this planet? Like, how can I, Jacqueline Burnett, like give back, you know? And it's about being filled in here. And I kind of want to talk about the environment that you've created for yourself. This, I don't know if I want to call it happiness habitat, but I'm sure happy here. Yeah, <laughs> like, too. how have you created such a beautiful environment? And what are some ways that if people are stuck in, in a situation, you know, it's like, it's like they say, you know, the, the grass is always green on the other side, or it's, it's greener where you water it, you know? So how do you yeah. make that, the grass greener? Well, we get grass may be green on the other side, but you still gotta cut it. You gotta cut it. <laughs> um, so, and that's the work, right? You have to enjoy the consistent, persistent pursuit of your potential. I, I gave a talk today about giving meaning to everything that you see. We give meaning to everything that you see. If you read Victor Frankl's book, the meaning, right? Not, not, not to be blind, but uh, shoot, he's in the Holocaust. But Victor Frankl's book, he talks about giving meaning to everything that he sees. And that I believe if you're stuck, you're lucky. Because that means you're, you're trying to grow. And it means you're trying to grow more than the speed in which you're growing. That's all stuck is. Uh, and people that don't feel stuck aren't trying to grow. Right? I mean, I could lock you in a room, and if you never try to get out, you won't feel stuck. Right? If you're nice and cozy, if there's the TV, the Xbox, the I, Instagram, and the videos, and like, you know, I built a closet like this, you know, it's like has everything in there. And, uh, don't feel stuck, but the minute I try to get out of there and it doesn't open, I feel stuck. And what if every time I pulled the door open, it just moved a micromillimeter? And then the second time was twice as much as that, and then the third time was twice as much. What if the fifth time I'm like, oh, I'm stuck, I'm gonna quit? And then I just go back to living in my closet. That sucks, but that's what people do with their lives. And you know, the external situations that change amongst us sometimes faster and sometimes slower and then which we anticipate are relevant, are relevant, because we give meaning to everything you see. As long as you're consistently persistent, persistently pursuing your potential and enjoying that, there's, it's just stuck being stuck. I'm always stuck being stuck, because I'm constantly trying to accelerate and grow, and I rejoice in it, I love it. I even have shifted my paradigm of pain into the fact that I get excited when the joy comes on, because it means a big lesson is coming, and uh, I just pray, you know, I've learned the lessons of the physical and financial pain. Those are two that I try not to experience too often. I, I don't feel as if, um, you know, financially uh, I need to, to grow and experience big pains anymore. Um, so I'm a little bit more cautious and physically as well. I don't, I don't want to jump motorcycles off of roofs to learn lessons <laughs> like 19-year-olds Jaeger Dave. Um, but I don't want to do that anymore. But spiritually, emotionally, uh, I want pain. Uh, you know, I want just enough pain physically to keep in shape and grow. But, uh, you know, I think pain is, can be an exciting, uh, good thing. And then, okay, so cause I'm, I'm thinking about that and I'm like, I sometimes, the my lens of gratitude, when I have painful moments, like I had a little painful moment this morning, and I recognize it, and I was like, okay, this means that I'm transforming right now. 
Like literally that's how I recognize it. But sometimes we don't always want to have those feelings or sometimes not everyone gets to experience those feelings. And that might be because they're not putting themselves in a situation that allows them to feel that way. But what's a way where even they can go in to quote unquote pain or that, that growth period if it's not happening in the, a larger scale that they wish it would happen in? I think two things always work, understanding, yeah. right? So you gotta be patient and understand. So I seek the truth, I pursue the truth. So if I'm in one of those situations, I just try to understand it and give it time. And, but I'm aggressive, I'm ferocious at understanding it. I'm more interested than interesting. Uh, and then two, um, I pray for his happiness. I give it the light, the love, the lessons, the energy that it deserves. I know that by being completely vulnerable, like you said earlier, that I'm invulnerable. Uh, that, you know, telling the truth and the light, the love. And when I don't tell the truth, and I have good intentions usually when I don't tell the truth, you know, there is a void or shortage and obstacle interference or corrosion to the greatest source of power le lessons that I have. And the more that I keep learning it, the greater my awareness, the greater my awareness, the easier life gets. It's very simple. That's beautiful. Thank you, Dave. And I want to know, too, I have one last question for you. It's a great question. How do you define happiness? That's easy. Happiness is to enjoy, to consistent every day, persistent without quick pursuit of your potential. And happiness is the greatest disease, the strongest disease. It's shared by everyone simply by witnessing it, and it will strengthen everyone's immune system. It is one badass, and my wish, and my entire mission in life, as you know, is to empower over a billion people to be happy, so I'm so glad that you're one of my 1,000 people that I know will empower another 1,000 to empower another 1,000 to be happy. A thousand times a thousand a million, a million times a thousand a billion, and together we create a collective consciousness of happiness so that the world is a happiness habitat. So thank you, Jack. Beautiful. Thank you, Dave. And last but not least, where can everyone find you? Right here in my backyard, at What's David up? Meltzer. Yeah, <laughs> uh, no, go ahead, uh, find me, david at dmeltzer.com, dmeltzer.com. I do free trainings every Friday, so join me. Uh, and uh, especially, I have a text number, 949-298-2905. David Meltzer with his favorite cousin, Jack Lindner. Thank you so much. That was beautiful. Thank you, Dave. <laughs> Thank you. You're the best. Thanks for joining me on another episode from Happiness Habitat. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and share with a friend so they too can learn from the lessons on today's show. I look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now.